Well, go ahead and grab a seat. And let me add uh, my welcome to the course of welcomes this morning. My name is Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's, and it is very good to be with you. A uh, couple of quick announcements. Number one, uh, hopefully I'll have a voice by the end of the service, as you can hear. It's a little hoarse. Uh, I have asthma, whether you needed to know that or not. Uh, but whenever I get a little cold, I end up getting a cough for like six weeks. So it's been six weeks. I go to my doctor just to make sure my lungs aren't falling apart. Lungs are good. It's not COVID. Don't worry if I'm coughing. And um, they're like, oh, you should try this medicine. It'll help your cough. Well, side effects include coughing and losing your voice. Great things for a preacher. Uh, so my voice is here and I'm still coughing. But you didn't need to know any of my medical history. Just in case my voice gives out, that's what's happening. Point 1.5. Uh, if you're like, why did we just baptize babies? Did something bad just happen? Like, if that's not a part of your background, just shoot me an email and I'll send you a 13-point quick summary of why we baptize infants. It's already written. I'll send it to you. Um, happy to send that to you. Uh, if you have kids and you don't want to baptize them, that's cool. We're not going to make you baptize your baby. But for those of you that want to baptize your baby, we think that is a good and right thing to do. And we're very glad to have done it today. Uh, as you heard, uh, Carol's in the City is coming up. Please grab some of these invite cards at the connection table. Just send them everywhere. Uh, your workspace, your home, your neighbors. Uh, we would love just to create that space for people to share in Christmas joy. Uh, but more importantly, uh, we have received our 2022 daily offices. Uh, these, wow, okay. Uh, these help you enter into the practice of morning and evening prayer. Uh, friends, our vision is that every single person who calls this place home would engage in this. Uh, this is an entry point. If you've never had faithful practices of reading scripture and prayer, this is going to help you. Uh, maybe you have your own practices, but this can supplement them. You, we can be praying for the same things Monday through Sunday. And so uh, grab one. They're at the connection table. They're free. Uh, this really, we want this to be a defining mark of our community. So we hope you'll participate in it with us. All of that being said, let's get to the sermon. Uh, in our Advent series that we've called Farewell, uh, we're listening in on the conversation Jesus had with his distressed disciples on the evening before his crucifixion. Uh, and we're doing this because this farewell conversation can help us find endurance and hope in our own troubled world. It can anchor us as we wait for Christ to appear again. Uh, last week, we took a look at a promise Jesus makes. He's preparing a room for us in our Father's house, and he's making the way there. He's making the way back home for us in the very presence of God. And today, we're going to continue to press into this idea of home. But we're not going to just contemplate our future home in our internal dwelling with God, but we're going to look at how God begins to take that future home and make it here in us. So, there's so much that could be said about our passage that was just read. I want to focus in on three ideas. Orphans, the helper, and peace. Orphans, the helper, and peace. Let's begin with orphans. Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. It can literally be translated as, I will not leave you without a father. I will not leave you without a father. In this farewell conversation, there has been much talk about the father. 
Jesus said he's returning to the Father. He's going to the Father to prepare a home for us, a room for us. He said that nobody comes to the Father except through him. And that if people have known him, they have known the Father. And in response to all this talk about the Father, if we go back a couple of verses, the Apostle Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. What do you do with a statement like that? Show us God and it'll be enough for us. You know, throughout the Old Testament, whenever God revealed himself, he always had to condescend his form, not in a belittling sort of way, but in a way that we can actually behold him. You know, when he appears to Moses, for example, he only revealed his back. I'm sure it was a very nice back, but only his back. Because the glory of God is too much for our minds to comprehend. And the holiness of God is too much for sinners to endure. Philip says, show us the Father. It's a ludicrous demand, but Jesus is patient. He replies to Philip in verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Philip's statement was bold. Jesus was like bold, italic, underline. He ups the ante. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Whatever you think about Jesus, you do not know him until you know him as God. You do not know Jesus Christ until you know him as God. He says uh, twice in this farewell conversation, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. God peering among us as one of us. Now, the critics throughout John's gospel, they actually understood Jesus on this point. That's why they keep accusing him of blasphemy. But the disciples, they're a little slow on the uptake. It takes a while for them to grasp what his critics seem to understand very evidently. Everyone who encounters Jesus has to decide, is this true? Is this true? Do I meet God in the face of Jesus Christ? So all of this is the context for when Jesus goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you without a father. Now, in saying to us, I will not leave you, Jesus presses in to a basic fear in our hearts. Jesus is going away, and in a very childlike way, we're very afraid of being left alone. Being left alone can be scary. Uh, One summer, Julia and I were vacationing in Salt Spring, and we left Ansley and Maggie in their room at night, Uh, uh, so we could just have dinner outside, a little distance away from the cottage, but we thought a responsible distance. And Julia thought, well, we should go check in on the kids. And so as she got closer to the front door, she heard crying. And so she ran into the room, and somehow Ansley had managed to crawl out of her bed and into a wooden laundry hamper and couldn't get out. And Maggie uh, was in a pack-and-play crib and couldn't talk yet, so she's just standing there staring at her sister like, why is she in this box? And... After all the comforting and the settling and the the parent guilt, uh, Ansley said, 
I'm too young for you to leave me alone. <laughs> Sometimes parenting lessons are learned the hard way. Uh, as an adolescent, being alone, well, it can be an opportunity to make a mess of things. A lesson my parents learned the hard way. Uh, let's just say my, uh, my teens were questionable and my older cousin Robert, who was responsible to watch over me one time my parents left me alone, I, he still holds a soft grudge some 25 years later. And being left alone, it can be an isolating experience. And the pandemic has exacerbated this. You know, while you might enjoy your own company, the longing to reach out and connect, to not be alone and to have that need not met is intensely painful. And as we said in the announcements, we care about you. And if you're struggling, please reach out. We'd love to connect with you. My point is this. We have varied experiences of what it's like to be left alone from childhood to adulthood. And many studies confirm just how damaging aloneness can be for our psychology. Jesus says to his disciples, he's going away. And surely they think, how can this be a good thing? You're leaving us. It's scary. What if we make a mess of things? What if we're left alone and isolated from really seeing and knowing the way to God? And so it's of some comfort that Jesus says, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans or without a father. Because if you've known and seen Jesus, you've known and seen the Father. This is what he's told us. Now, we are in a different position, aren't we? We may have not seen Jesus physically as the disciples, but Jesus doesn't see this as a setback, and neither should we. You know, in his farewell conversation, Jesus actually says it's to his disciples' advantage that he goes away because he's going to send the Spirit, a point we'll get to in a moment. And after the resurrection, Jesus actually says to his disciples in John 20, verse 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. So there's a kind of blessedness, a kind of it is well with you reality of believing without physically seeing Jesus. And of course, this has been the vast majority experience of the church, except for a few. How do we know and see Jesus? We know and see him in scripture. That's why we preach out of the scriptures week after week, not because they're just interesting to listen to, but because we believe when the scriptures are read, God speaks. Now, I may interpret them wrong from time to time, but God speaks through his word and through his word proclaimed. So, having not physically seen Jesus, it doesn't mean we have a lesser experience of the disciples. In fact, Jesus thinks we're at an advantage because he's going to send help. Even so, now it's not uncommon to struggle with this inv invisible nature of a father. You know, like, what are we supposed to do with a God we never see? You know, we can't see God, so we wonder, you know, is God really there? Am I alone? Is there a home? And we can be moved by the world and its trouble and its toil and its disrepair and ask, you know, is the Father really good? And on top of that, our own experiences with our earthly fathers can make it difficult at times to relate to this idea of God 
as a good father. And Jesus knows all of this. And so he makes a promise. He will not leave us as orphans. And we have to press into the substance of this promise. Because throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, I only say what my Father tells me to say. I only do what my Father tells me to do. So we should hear God the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit saying to his beloved, I will not leave you as orphans. God's saying to us, I will not leave you alone, even if you can't see it. I am with you. God will not abandon you, and God will not leave you to fend for yourself. And let's take note of this too. Right after making this promise, Jesus immediately says in verse 18, I will come to you. This is a twofold promise. It's a big picture promise. Jesus promises that he will return. He will establish his kingdom. He's going to come and judge the living and the dead, and his rule and reign will last forever and ever and ever, world without end. Amen. But it's also a here and now promise. Jesus promises to send us a helper until that day. So let's turn to our second point, the helper. Jesus says in verse 25, uh, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. We are not left alone. We are not without a father. The father and the son have sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now the word translated here for helper uh, or it's sometimes translated advocate. The word is paraclete. Can you say that? Paraclete. It's kind of fun. Paraclete. It means one who appears alongside another. Someone who's called to someone's aid. Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he's going to keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. We're waiting for home uninterrupted, a room in our Father's house in his eternal dwelling. And in the meantime, the Spirit comes to dwell in us and make a home in us. What does that mean? Well, Jesus says in verse 20, You will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. You will know that I am in my Father, and that you are in me, and I am in you. The Christian movement is nothing less than this, being caught up into the very life and love of God, celebrating in a union in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit share themselves with us and bring us into their very life and love. That is what makes Christianity so very exciting. And this happens through our helper, the Spirit who dwells with you and will be in you, says Jesus in verse 17. So during Advent, it's helpful to remember that we are waiting for an everlasting home, that as we face trouble, we can anchor ourselves in this truth. There's a home waiting for us. 
And we might experience some homesickness while we wait, but there is a home. That as we wait, our home starts to dwell in us here and now. Now, I know all this can sound very ethereal, yes? So let's try to make it a bit more concrete. Uh, This is uh, Theaster Gates. Uh, He's an acclaimed artist who is creatively engaged in revitalizing his neighborhood. And I learned about his incredible work in an episode on the show, Home. Has anyone watched watched this? One person. You should go watch it. It's incredible. So Theaster is based in Chicago, but he chose to stay in the South Side neighborhood, an area that nobody was investing into financially. And he says his friends with money sense would actually say to him, like, don't invest all your money in this building because you're never going to get your money out of it. But he wasn't worried about resale value or equity. He says, I was investing in my life. I was investing in my block. So he started with his own home. He renovated one house, and it is a work of beauty, and it became known in the community as the Archive House. And then the building next door became available, and he renovated it, and it's even more stunning than the one before, and this became known as the Listening House. And then a building across the street became available, and he bought it and renovated it, and it became known as the Black Cinema House, and he tried to restore the culture of black uh, filmmaking in the community. And Theaster splits his time between these three dwellings, but he opens them up to the entire community. They're all social spaces for the arts and for building relationship and sharing love. It's not just about him, but his community, his neighborhood. Then he helped build a coffee shop, and the community space is called the Currency Exchange Cafe. Then he established a local lumber mill, simply called the mill, so that more renovations can take place with greater ease. And then his most ambitious project, he bought the most beautiful dilapidated bank for $1 and renovated it into the Stony Island Arts Block, which has become a world-renowned cultural arts center. It is almost unbelievable to see how much this individual has done for his neighborhood in a relatively small amount of time. Now, he has lots of connections, lots of ways of making things happen. Even so, it is breathtaking. You need to see it. Now, here's what I love. Theaster says his goal is simple. These are his words. I want to help artists in Chicago make Chicago home. Yes, the Aster is an incredible artist and visionary, but he's also an advocate. He advocates for restoration and not demolition, for creativity and not status quo, for the neighborhood and not somewhere else, for renewal and not abandonment. He is an advocate for home. I love it. Now, I don't know if the Aster is a person of faith or not. Either way, The aster is this beautiful glimpse of what the Spirit of God, the advocate, wants to do in our lives and in this world. He's making a home. The Spirit advocates for home. According to Jesus, everyone who loves him and keeps his commands, which in John's gospel means believe in him and love others. So everyone who loves Jesus and keeps his commands 
The Spirit himself will dwell in us and make a home in us. Friends, this is no small thing. This is no ordinary thing. This is no flippant thing. The Spirit of the living God begins a renovation of your heart. The Spirit of the living God begins a renovation of a community. Just as the Spirit of the living God hovered over creation, the Spirit of the living God will remake this whole creation. The Spirit as our advocate is about restoration and creativity and bringing renewal into our lives, into our communities, into the world. You see, God is concerned about our future with him and he is concerned about our life here and now. Our future should spur us on into living it in the present so that the present in whatever small form may look more and more like our future. And so home is taking root in us and through us as we journey on our way back home to the Father. So friends, Jesus promises we are not alone. We have a helper, a spirit who advocates advocates for home. Now let's just consider our last point, peace. Now turn to verses 25 through 27 one more time. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It is safe to say that our eternal home of God will feel like peace. When we arrive on eternity's shores, when we are ushered into the room prepared for us, whatever that may be, it will feel like peace. And so it makes sense that as God makes his home in us here and now, it feels like peace. And it makes sense that Jesus, knowing how deeply afraid we are of being alone, promises us peace. Take note, Jesus doesn't promise any peace. This is not some kind of tranquility or disassociation from the world in which you're never impacted by it or a promise that all your problems will disappear. Jesus promises his peace. He promises that we'll share in his peace. It is a peace established through our relational connection to him. It is the peace of being with him and him dwelling in us. This is how our hearts can be steady and even unafraid in a deeply troubled world. And I know we should be asking, well, how do we experience this peace that Jesus offers? In Philippians, Paul offers just a few practical ways to open ourselves up to the peace of Christ. Here's what Paul writes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice, which Anglicans translate as singing like this at all times. (laughs) Don't have time for a fun aside. It's there. It's there. Rejoice always. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. Look, if you have a mental health disorder, if you have an anxiety disorder, it's not talking about that. It's talking about the common worries that we all face. 
So don't let this condemn you, but still see it as an invitation. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul prescribes three spiritual practices for us. Rejoicing, remembering, and praying with thanks. Let's just look quickly at each. Paul says rejoice. In other words, name what is good. He goes on to say, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So friends, rejoice in the small and big things. Rejoice in little kids that pull your attention away from me, as lovely as they are. Bless you. But rejoice. Kids, they're awesome. Rejoice. There's a community. Rejoice in the small and the big. It doesn't mean you fake a smile. I'm not asking for that, and neither is God. It means you choose to find what is good, even when it's hard, and even if your heart isn't initially in it. Paul says, remember, remember the Lord is with us. In this passage, in John, it's the Spirit also who brings all things to remembrance, including this reality that the Lord is at hand, that Jesus Christ is not away. He is here right now. And remember this. Remember, Christ is here. You are not alone. You are not an orphan. God has sent the helper. So center your mind on this reality. And then Paul says to pray with thanksgiving. So make your requests. Cast all your burdens. Share the needs of others. Pray as Robert Herrick does in the poem we heard. Sweet spirit, comfort me. But don't forget to pray with thanks. Take stock of your life in plenty and in want and say thank you to the Lord down to every last detail if you can muster it. So you rejoice and remember and pray and the peace of God settles into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, into our bones. Don't let this be a burden. Think of it like a meal. Yes, I guess you could get an IV and have all your nutrients just pumped into you and passively receive nutrition. But there's much more delight in actively eating. This is how you actively eat the peace of Christ. A meal that is so freely offered. These are the utensils, so to speak. And I know it's not always easy to choose to rejoice in a broken world or through difficult times. It's not always easy to see how the Lord is with us when the world staggers and shakes. It's not easy to choose prayer when we're feeling anxious or to choose any of these things when a season of celebration just stirs our sorrow. But even so, one of the best things you could do this Advent is to begin to make these a consistent part of your day. These practices, they're not meant to be ad hoc or something you do when the mood strikes. They're things you're invited to do daily as a way of anchoring yourself in Christ, as avenues that open you up to this meal, this fountain of peace peace that flows from our eternal home into our hearts as the Spirit makes a home in us. 
this peace is not just for ourselves. It's not just about us. It's also about the neighborhood. Like the Aster Gates, we can become advocates because the Spirit of God living within us is making a home in us. He's advocating for peace through us. So we pass the peace. We extend the peace. We share the peace. We find creative ways to make peace in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our work, in our play, in our passions, in our commitments. They might not be as huge or dramatic as the Aster Gates or warrant a television show, but your small movements towards peace have eternal roots. They will last. So during Advent, during our whole life, we can ask and pray together, Lord, you've made your home in us. How can we offer peace to this world? Stir our creativity. Show us the way. And friends, the spirit of the living God who has made his home in us will give us peace in a troubled world. And God will show us how to share his peace in a world that's in distress. Let's pray.